0: Father, thank you for this evening. Thank you for the time to sit together with brothers and sisters. Thank you for the perfection of your word and the power of your Holy Spirit, the ability the Spirit has to illuminate the Word of God and make it plain to us, even its uh, its most complex and deepest teachings. So be with us uh, tonight as we walk through these verses. We pray in Jesus name. Amen. All right, so we're looking tonight and going to focus on verses nineteen through twenty four. But to get a, a good start, I wouldn't mind somebody reading. Um, uh, tell you what, let's uh, have somebody read uh, Romans 9, 1 through 18, and then I'll read the, the portion that we're studying tonight. So anyone that feels like they'd like to read Romans 9, 1 through 18.
1: <clears throat> I speak the truth in Christ. And I am not lying. My conscience confirms it in the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. It is not as though God's word has failed. had failed. For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who were regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, in order that God's purpose in the election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I love and Esau I hate. It. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden.
0: One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? But who are you, O man, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles." All right, so let's uh, do some context work here. Uh, Romans 1 through 8 is the display of the gospel, which Paul calls in Romans one sixteen the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. And so eight chapters of the unfolding of gospel doctrine, there's nowhere in the Bible that teaches the doctrine of salvation of the gospel more clearly than those eight chapters. It ends with this, I can't imagine any passage that would give us more of a sense of confidence and assurance uh, of our final salvation than that. And that seems to be what Paul is working towards, that he would give us confidence, that he would give us assurance of salvation. But he also seems to be working very hard in these uh, chapters on, on humbling. He asks, where then is boasting? It is excluded. He wants us to understand that we're saved by God and by the power of God and that we would be humbled. So these two great themes have been on my mind as we've walked through Romans 9. These two great uh, goals that God has. He wants to give his people a genuine sense of humbling uh, so that we would not boast in his presence, that we would understand salvation is of the Lord. But he also, along with that, wants to give us a, a sense of assurance, a sense of confidence. Well, there's a key problem. Anyone who's read the Old Testament knows what that is. Uh, Anyone who knows the long, uh, torturous, and tragic history of God's dealing with the Jewish nation, uh, this is a problem acutely on Paul's mind in his daily life and his ministry, the problem of the Jews. The problem of why it is that the overwhelming majority of Jews are rejecting Jesus as their Messiah, would like to continue in Old Covenant Judaism, would like to continue with the animal sacrifices, have no interest in Jesus. Why is that? Uh, This is tragic uh, because it will result in their eternal damnation. Uh, So it's a a very uh, tragic issue. And so Paul begins in chapter nine with sorrow. It's a a tremendous statement of sorrow. I have great sorrow sorrow and unceasing anguish. I think he shed many tears over this. Um, The language is very personal. You know, he talks about his brothers, uh, the people of Israel, the people of his own kin, his kindred, his, his uh, relatives, um, and so he has sorrow over this, that sorrow should tell us a lot. It does make a difference whether individual Jewish people ever repent and believe in Jesus or not. Therefore, any any feeling that we would have as as Christians that we don't need to share the gospel with Jewish people um, because they're fine as they are is completely destroyed by this chapter and by Paul, Paul's sorrow. It certainly wasn't Paul's conviction. Paul was laboring in synagogue after synagogue to bring the Jews to a faith in Christ, but most of them rejected, most of them refused, and so he's dealing with that. But the problem here is he's saying this is a theological issue, this is a theological problem, all right? It's a problem for everybody, for the whole world. It's a problem for all the converts who have turned to faith in Christ from Gentile backgrounds. It's a problem. And so he addresses right away that the focus is on the Jewish people as verse three through five makes it plain. That's the problem that we're dealing with. I believe that his answer goes on for three chapters. We're dealing with this in, in Romans 9, 10, and 11. So that's three chapters of answer. And it's a topic that it deserves that, that kind of uh, attention because it's centuries and centuries and centuries of God dealing with the Jews. And uh, I believe it's gonna continue on, Romans 11, gonna continue on to the end, end of human history. It's a continued saga. So Paul's immediate concern, though, is not with the Jews. His immediate concern is with this issue. Has God's word failed? Did God fail in his effort to save the Jews and is now turning to the Gentiles? And that's a significant problem for everybody. Why would that be a problem for everybody? For us in this room tonight, God's word has failed when it came to the Jews. If
1: it fails, it fails for all of us. It fails for not just the Jews, but also for the Gentiles.
0: Right, so if God has failed to achieve something he was trying to achieve with them Mm -hmm. in this issue of salvation, where's our confidence? Remember, that's one of the major things he's trying to give us, is absolute assurance and confidence of our final salvation. But if God has failed with the Jewish nation, how do we know he won't fail with us? And so he just takes that right off the table by making this, this strong assertion, it is not as though God's word has failed. Why is that? Because of the the role of God's word in the Bible. Right away, God said, let there be light, and there was light, all right? When God says, let there be, there is. And this is in the written word of God. We need to understand this is the power of God. Everything comes down to the word of God by the breath of of his mouth where the heavens created. Everything's made by the word of God. The word of God precedes reality. Or this a strong assertion in Isaiah 55, 10-11, As the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return to it without watering the earth, earth making it bud and flourish, so that it yields seed for the sower and bread for the eater, so is my word that goes out from my mouth. It will not return to me empty, but will accomplish what I desire and achieve the purpose for which I sent it. So that statement in Isaiah 55 is an absolute partner to Romans 9-6. Do you see that? God's word cannot fail. And God is very zealous over this. He tells Jeremiah, I have been watching over my word to see that it is fulfilled. So God makes certain that his word is fulfilled. He wants that. Uh, and now our salvation is dependent on it. We could, I could have chosen many verses. Uh, for example, in the next chapter, faith comes from hearing the word. All right, that's where our salvation comes. From. It comes from the word. Or Romans four seventeen, God gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were for example light god says let there be light and there's light god calls life out of death Uh, god calls a baby from the dead womb of sarah and the dead body of abraham he's able to create life and that is a picture of our resurrection from the dead which is the finish line of our salvation. God is able to speak to corpses in the grave and say come forth like Lazarus come forth and we'll come come out. That's our confidence right? God can do that. So God's word is not failed. It's very important. All right so then what what is the answer? Why is it then? If God's word is not failed then why is it that the overwhelming majority of israelites are rejecting christ well his answer is not all who are descended from israel are israel there is a set within the set you can think about venn diagrams there's a set a circle and then there's a circle within the circle and the big circle is the biological descendants of abraham the jews and then there's an elect within that who are true jews they are the real israel the others aren't any different than the pagans the canaanite nations that they displaced they are the same they think the same they live the same and that's proven isn't it in the pages of old testament history they just act like pagans they, they follow the same gods and goddesses and they do the same things they have the asherah poles and the and they sacrifice to Moloch. There, there's just no difference But then there are the Jews, with that that group within the group. And it's always been the case. It's not like some new thing now that the gospel of Jesus Christ is spreading out. It's always been that way. He's going to bring up the case of Elijah back in the days of Elijah. It was the same thing back then. It's been the consistent history, all right? Uh, Group within the group, the elect and the non-elect. And he begins right from the start of the Jewish nation with Abraham, who had two sons, Ishmael first and then Isaac. Ishmael by the slave woman, Hagar, and then Isaac by his wife, Sarah. Um, and Isaac was the child of the promise. Ishmael was not. All right. Then, secondly, you have the story of Jacob and Esau. Uh, in that case, the same mother, even even the same, you know, uh, uh, moment of, of marital intimacy, producing two babies within the womb of one woman, twins, and they were wrestling in the tomb in the in the womb. Sorry, uh, w- wrestling with each other, and, and uh, Rebekah was told. Uh, two nations are in your womb, uh, and the older will serve the younger. So this is what Paul quotes, uh, and then he zeroes in on, on this teaching. In verse 8, it's not the natural children who are God's children, but it's the children of the promise, or the children of, of the Spirit, the children of the power of God. They're supernaturally born. They're, they're not just biologically born. They're born again, as Jesus would say to Nicodemus. They are, um, a, they are truly Abraham's children. And so God's purpose and election in all this was not by works, but by Him who calls. All right, and the reason again is the two the two full goals of Romans nine. If it is by works, where is your confidence? Where is your assurance? If your salvation is by works, do you think you should have assurance? And if you do, something's wrong with you. I would call you arrogant. And there was a group of people like that in Jesus' day, the scribes and Pharisees. Did they think they were going to hell? Did they think they were on the right path? Yes. Do they think their righteousness was enough? Yes. But that's just arrogance. That's a terrible place to be. It's not the healthy who need a doctor but the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous because there aren't any. I came to call sinners to repentance. And so if you think it is by works and you have confidence that you're going to finally be saved, you're no different than that group of people, Right? But if you think it is by works and you don't, you have despair, right? You're crushed, you're you're going to hell and there's nothing that can change it, you're depressed, discouraged, it's a terrible way to live. Either way, if you think it is by works, assurance is gone, all right? And boasting is not excluded because if, if it is by works, then you're going to boast. So God's purpose in election is not by works but by, not by grace, not faith, that's not what he says. Not by works, but by him who calls. Who's the him in the sentence? The the only him that matters? God. So God is pitted against works. I know in other verses, faith is pitted against works. I understand that grace is pitted against works in other places. All that's true, but those are secondary. It is not by works, but God who gives grace and faith and all that. It's God. God is like personally opposed to salvation by works. And so that's, that's the whole thing, not by works, but by him who calls. God wants salvation to be ultimately his work for his glory, not human work for human glory. He doesn't want to listen to this. Daniel 4, 30, Nebuchadnezzar said, is this not the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? He doesn't want hundreds of millions of people acting like that in heaven. He doesn't want to listen to that. What happened in Nebuchadnezzar when he said those words? He, God struck his mind and judged. He could have killed him, but he showed him grace. But I'm telling you, God doesn't want to listen to that. And so he wants us saved in a, in a way that, that we will be humbled, not in heaven. So before the twins were born or had done anything, good or bad, all right, in order that God's purpose and election might, might stand, that's when she was told this, etc. So, in other words, the sequence, the timing matters, just like circumcision, as we said before. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness before he was circumcised. So, therefore, what does the circumcision have to do with his righteousness? Nothing. The sequence matters. Same thing with the twins. What do their works have to do with them being chosen? Nothing that's proven by the sequence before they were born or had done anything good or bad. And clearly this is Paul's point, isn't it? This is why he says it. In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works by by him who calls. All right, so then along comes the objection. If all this is true, that sounds unjust. Is God unjust? This sounds unjust. Most normal people these days would say unfair. They use this language, that doesn't sound fair. But they mean just, it's it's unjust. And so he says, is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I'll have compassion on whom I have compassion. All right, so it is not a matter of justice, but of mercy. All right, God's self-revelation to Moses was nothing that God would ever owe to anyone. So justice is a matter of God has to do it. Right? There's a compulsion to justice. It would be unjust for him not to do that. Right? But what does, what does Paul bring in? He brings in Moses' experience with God on the mountain. So if it is by works and if it's a wage, if it's an obligation, then um, it, it says in Romans 4.4, when a man works, his wages are not created him as a gift, but as an obligation. God owes it. He owes it to you. Well, Paul brings us to uh, Moses on the mountain. He says, Moses, uh, then Moses said to God, now show me your glory, right? And the Lord said, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you and I'll proclaim my name, the Lord, in your presence. And then here's the quote, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's like, what? why that passage? Why does he choose that? Well, friends, it's because that's what heaven is. Heaven is an eternal revelation of God's glory to a set of people. An eternal revelation of the glories of God. That's what heaven is all about. Okay? A full display of God's glory is in heaven. Now, ultimately, Moses was saying, take me to heaven where I can see your full glory forever and ever. All right? So, think about that. Give me the highest, the greatest, the best you have to offer, all right? Give me that. And imagine that being by justice, right? I owe it to you. He doesn't owe that. He does not owe that to anybody, all right? But heaven is all about the glory of God. Someone read the two passages in Revelation, if you would. They're in the handout. And he carried
1: me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high, and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It shone with the glory of God, and its brilliance is that, like that of a very precious jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. The new Jerusalem does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and the lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light,
0: Okay, so heaven is all about the glory of God. The whole place is shining with it, it's radiate, radiating with it, right? And uh, the manifold glories of God, uh, the essence of that is knowing God, like Jesus said in John 17:3. Now this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Again, he says in that same prayer, Father, I want those whom you have given me to be with me where I am and to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. So they are absolutely related. To know God is to drink in his glory. God's, God's uh, manifest perfections, all of the good things about him. And that's what heaven's all about. It's an eternal education in the glory of God. That's what Moses asked for. And he says, I will only give it to people by mercy, not by justice. It's not, not by justice, only by mercy. All right, so salvation can never ultimately be by human works or human will or human anything, but only by God's mercy, undeserved and free. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Then he brings in Pharaoh. So he's got these two great witnesses in that paragraph. Moses first, positively, representing the elect, who are given the ultimate gift of God's glory forever in heaven by mercy, not by justice. Then the second second paradigm is Pharaoh. All right, Pharaoh. So he brings in Pharaoh, paradigm example of a non-elect person, just as earlier in this chapter Esau was. So Esau and Pharaoh represent unbelievers, including the Jews. Wouldn't that be shocking for the average Jewish person? You are like Pharaoh. You are like Esau. They would have been incredibly offended by that. But isn't that what Paul's saying? Unbelieving Jews are like that. They're like Esau. They're like Pharaoh. All right, well, the question he brings in is like, well, why, verse 17, 917, why does he bring in that quote? Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. All right, it brings up the very question we're seeking to answer tonight in verses 19 through 24. Why does God create people who end up in hell? Why? Why do they exist at all? Why does God knit them together in their mother's wombs? Why does he position them? Why does he give them good gifts? Knowing the whole time they're going to end up in hell. And so he begins to anticipate that as a problem and to answer it. He begins to answer it in verse 17. Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. So you can just stop right there. The reprobate, the non-elect, have a purpose. It's not like God doesn't know why they exist God has a purpose for them. He had a purpose for Pharaoh, all right? And so that's the statement. So why does God create people, whether Jews or non-Jews, who will ultimately end up in hell? The answer is to display his attributes. Um, and that's the same answer he gives for everything, why he created the universe. It is for his own glory, to put himself on display. God uses Pharaoh to put himself on display. It's pretty clearly what he's saying. I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth you are here to make much of me that's what he's saying in verse 17 and that's glory language glory is display to put god on display that's glory language so the non-elect the reprobate exist for the glory of god that's the answer and he's going to double down on that in verse 19 through 24 all right so um He he says, "I'm doing this for my purpose. I might make a, uh, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth." All right. Why is that important? For God's name to be proclaimed in all the earth.
1: Well, others believe. Yeah, you've you've got people all over the world can call on to be saved.
0: Exactly. Chapter 10. He says. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. For everyone who calls on what? The name of the Lord will be saved. But how can they call on one they have not believed in? And how can they believe in someone of whom they have what? Never heard. And how can they hear without someone preaching? Or another word would be, proclaiming it and how can they proclaim unless they're sent you see how it all fits together this name has to be proclaimed so that people will see the greatness of the name call on that name and be saved so call paul is actually using i'm uh, sorry god is actually using pharaoh to save other people including rahab the harlot right rahab heard about what god did to pharaoh at the red sea remember and as a result she housed The two spies, and made a covenant with them to save herself and her family. And that went far beyond just surviving the falling of the Jericho walls and all that. It ends up in her being a paradigm example of faith and works in action in James 2 and also in Hebrews. So, this is a a marvelous picture of how this whole thing works. Because God made, you know, just showed his power with Pharaoh and the Egyptians, Rahab got saved. And it turns out we get saved too because Rahab was in Jesus' genealogy. So that ends up being pretty important for Jesus being born as well. Isn't it beautiful how this whole thing comes together? All right. So she's part of that whole genealogy. All right. Summary. Two types of people receive two patterns of treatment from God. Okay. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Or literally... I looked again at the Greek today. This is a literalistic translation from the Greek. Therefore, on whomever he wills, he has mercy, and whomever he wills, he hardens. It's just that simple, all right? So God, the word God doesn't show up in that verse, but clearly God is the he in the verse, all right? Fundamentally, then, God either has mercy on a person or hardens them. I would contend all the way through, like even before they're born, all right? Like where the where the elect are born, who their parents are, every, everything's been thought out. Every detail's been thought out. And God doesn't flip, he doesn't change his mind. It's not like he was hardening, 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 and suddenly he's like, oh, wait, look, now I'll start having mercy on them. It doesn't work that way. Uh, that's not Paul's logic here at all. God has mercy on vessels of wrath, and uh, or verse, uh, on vessels of, of mercy and, and wrath, or hardened vessels of wrath. That's what he's saying. This is two different uh, patterns. Now, we cannot tell the difference. This is just theologically true, but we can't discern it going on. Does that make sense? We are not able to tell the difference between the wheat and the weeds. We can't tell what God is doing. Does that make sense? Can you give me an example of how it would be very difficult to tell that somebody is a vessel of mercy? There's a paradigm example of somebody who did not look like a vessel of mercy, but who actually was. Oh. Paul. Paul. Is he looking like a vessel of mercy the morning of his conversion? Not at all. He's looking like he's about to be struck dead. (laughs) God's going to strike him dead. So we can't tell the difference, especially with the reprobate, especially with those that God is hardening. You can't tell. And actually, that's what makes this doctrine so hard for us because we're supposed to behave like anyone we interact with might be a vessel of mercy. We, might, we should pray to that end, right, and evangelize to that end and show kindness to them to that end, right? That's our job. We're not to discern if somebody is a reprobate. We're actually doing everything hoping they're unconverted elect, aren't we? When we go out on mission trips and we uh, go out sharing the gospel here and we interact with an unconverted person, we interact with a lost person, we hope they are unconverted elect. We don't throw out the doctrine of election when we go out evangelizing. We actually believe in it. It's in the Bible. And we're going out and looking for them. Like Paul openly says, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Who's Paul looking for in that verse? Unconverted elect people. And how will he know that they're elect? By a favorable response they give to the gospel. He says to the Thessalonians, we know, brothers loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with the power, Holy Spirit, and deep conviction. You turned to God from idols, da-da-da-da. You lived a converted life. Therefore, we know God has chosen you. So we can know the election side once the people have been converted. Does that make sense? But we cannot know in this world the reprobation side. But we will know it in the next. That's the hardest part of my book in heaven. I taught this and people were like ashen as I was going through it. We're gonna know in heaven who they are? Of course we're gonna know. Or God's gonna hide it from the kids. Those are your two options. And do you think God's in the business of hiding what he does from his kids? I don't think so. He's gonna tell us everything. Just no grief, no sorrow. But that's another topic for another day. I have enough to just get through my handout. I'm only on whatever page I'm on. So let's keep going. Andrew, quick question. Yeah, about the word of reprobate. Unconverted mm-hmm. elect. Are they reprobate or are they just acting like they're reprobate? They're acting like it. They're acting but they're not reprobate. Reprobation is something that God does, you know, with the Jacob and Esau thing that elect and non elect. Everyone that God is hardening is yeah. If God's hardening you, you're reprobate. But all I'm saying is we can't tell. Somebody might be hardening their own heart, Satan's hardening them, but God isn't. And then God's just using it, using it. I mean, because you know what he says in, in Acts 26, the third account of Paul's conversion. It's in there three times in the book of Acts. But only there does he say, it's hard for you to kick against the goads. And the goads are inducements that are pushing Paul to be converted. And I, I could go through those, but I'm digressing. I think that would be Stephen's presentation of biblical truth that he couldn't refute and it stuck with him. There are things that Stephen said probably that bothered him and he couldn't refute them because they're true. And they're biblical, and he's like, man, I can't shake this argument. Jesus had those, didn't he? Didn't Jesus had arguments. How is it that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls his own son Lord? Answer me that question. And who is the Son of Man in Daniel 7? How do you even answer these things? Well, you answer by coming to faith in Jesus. That's what you do. But Paul, I think he couldn't shake them. So, anyway, let's keep going. Um, All right, so literally, all right, ultimately comes down to God's will, not man. Therefore, any interpreter who talks about Pharaoh first hardening his own heart before God ever hardened hardened it is missing Paul's point in Romans 9. That's actually patently obvious to me. That's not what Paul's doing. Paul isn't saying here, God lets everyone make a choice. God is saying my will is supreme. Of course, the Bible does call on man to will, to make a choice. We should not deny that. You know, my task as a preacher, a teacher, and just simply as a Christian is to try to take everything that the Bible teaches and harmonize it together into a sound theology. That's what we're all supposed to do. We're not, like, picking and choosing which verses we're gonna believe. They're all true. And if some don't seem to harmonize well, we gotta keep working on it and do our best to harmonize. And none of us does it perfectly. But clearly, the KJV version of um, Revelation 22, 17 says, and the Spirit and the bride say, come... And let him that heareth say, come, and let him that is athirst or thirsty, come, and whosoever will, let him take the water of life freely. That's probably the most famous whosoever will verse. And so there's no doubt in Revelation 22:17 17, that the people who come to Jesus thirsty and drink from him willed to do so. They wanted to do it. They made a choice of their own will to come. I believe that but to will and to do god's good will is beyond a sinner apart from his healing work if god doesn't take out that heart of stone and give the heart of flesh you will not we will not come to him you know you will not come to me that you may have life jesus said that you're not going to come no one can come to me unless the father sent me draws him so that's where i think philippians 2:13 says for it is god which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. So God does that work in us and then they will. Or as it says in another sense, we love because he first loved us, we choose because he first chose us. I think it's similar. It's the same kind of thing. So I'm not minimizing our choosing. I'm just sequencing it. The burning question then in front of us now is how shall we understand the justice and goodness of God and the damnation of the reprobate, the Esau's and the Pharaoh's whom God hardens? And how shall we understand God's purpose in creating them at all, like Judas Iscariot, The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. So me being who I am, I always ask the question, then why was he born? Well, he was born because God wanted him born. God didn't accidentally knit Judas together in his mother's womb. He purposely knit Judas together in his mother's womb. God didn't do so having no idea who Judas was, he knew exactly who Judas was the whole time he was knitting Judas together in his mother's womb but he also knew what I'm doing right now in giving Judas a body and a soul is not best for Judas that's what Jesus said there do you see it would have been better for him not to have been born but it's better for us that he was and that's exactly where we're going now in Romans 9 All right, what is the purpose of those people and that's, that's where, he's, where he's heading. So this is the next objection raised. Why does God send anyone to hell? Verse 19, one of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us for who resists his will? By the way, doesn't the question prove the doctrine? This is not an Arminian kind of question here. If Arminianism were true, this question would be absurd. But because it's a sovereignty of God presentation and God's will is, is so strong and so dominant here, it does raise this question in people's minds. It's like, well, based on what you're saying, then why does God ever send anyone to hell? Because he can convert anyone he wants, right? Who resists his will, meaning if God wants you, he's gonna get you. And by the way, do you believe that? Do you believe if God wants to convert you, you're gonna get converted? Yes, that's called the doctrine of irresistible grace or effectual grace or effectual calling. When God says, let there be light, there's gonna be light. When God goes after you, he gets you. And that's so beautiful and so powerful. All that the Father gives me will come to me. Not a percentage of the ones the Father gives will come. All of them will. They're all going to come. All right, so then the question is like, all right, then why does anyone end up in hell? That's what he's asking, isn't it? Blame us means send us to hell here, ultimately. Does that make sense? Why does God still find fault with us or blame us for who resists his will? So he's raising the question. All right, if God is so all-powerful over human will and human hearts, why doesn't he simply save everyone? Why does anyone go to hell? God can do anything he wants with human hearts. Two underlying assumptions of the objection. Number one, Paul's doctrine teaches the absolute sovereignty of God in salvation. Number two, God's absolute sovereignty nullifies human responsibility, which it does not. That's the question, though. If God is sovereign, we are not responsible. Does that make sense? That's what's implicit in the question. Why does God blame us for who resists his will? If God's sovereign, then I'm not accountable. If God's sovereign, I'm not responsible. Well, that's not true. And so he's going to, now just because you can't harmonize that divine sovereignty, human responsibility, doesn't mean that they're not both true. But that's exactly, we're going right into the teeth of this thing now. That's what he's bringing up. All right. So as we talked last time, now we finally get the answer, right? Wrong. First, we all get rebuked. The entire human race gets rebuked if they're going to push back or question God on this. All right? Who are you, but who are you, O oh man, to talk back to God? So that's like just when you thought you're getting an answer, that's what you get. All right? Right there in verse 20. That's the answer. Who are you, O oh man? O oh man. Why does he say that, by the way? Who are you, O oh man? Why does he say that, man, oh man? And I don't mean man as opposed to woman, I mean human. Who are you, oh human? Why does he say that? Kind of um, discredit or belittle you, you know, put you, at your, put you in your place. Does God want to do that? Put us in our place? I think absolutely he wants to put us in our place. <laughs> you your creature. And what is our place? You said it, go ahead, say it. Creator versus creature. Yes, I'm creator, your creature. Stay in your lane, stay in your place, right? So hes hes it's a very strong statement here. And, and what's so amazing is he does go on to answer. He does go on to give answer. He doesn't cut it off at that point. But first, he wants to give us a major attitude adjustment. Do we need that, by the way? Is there any chance our race may be characterized by a bit of prideful arrogance toward God? Is that a problem with us? Any... Anybody here have a problem? Maybe not. All right, well, you're, I, thank you for speaking on behalf of all of us. I think we would all have to say it is probably our foundational problem. We have a fundamental prideful arrogance toward God. We don't seem to know who he is. And we don't seem to know who we are. What happened to Job when God talked to him out of the whirlwind? When all that was said and done, how did Job end up? How would you characterize the change in Job?
1: I, I, I always summarize Job as saying, Job coming to the realization and humbly saying, you are God and I am not. And all of his questions prior to that were not acknowledging the sovereignty of
0: God. That's true. Would you say he got humbled? <laughs> I think he got massively humbled. And, and he needed it. And what's amazing is he was... A, like a uniquely, amazingly blameless man, but still with a pride problem. And if he has it, how much more do we? I mean, he was a genuinely godly man, meaning he had a, a, a certain humility to him, a certain you know, beauty to his moral character, still needed to be humbled. Well, how much more do we? And so we've got to have this attitude adjustment as we venture forth. It's not some theology game we're playing here. We're not playing chess. We're trying to understand these words, and God has given them to us. And it's, it's like the Holy Spirit is saying to us right now, as if you're going to continue with this, you need to come continue humble as, as, a, as a creature, not the creator. Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way. You cannot understand... You're tempted to question and argue and to query. The reply to you is, who are you, O man, that replies to God? Replies against God. Actually, it's an anti-preface. In the Greek, the Greek word is talks against. That's what's going on here. You're answering against. Who are you, O man, that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, why have you made me like this? But that, you may say, is not a fair argument. It's, It's rather a prohibition of argument and the exertion of an unfair authority to which I reply that we were never meant to argue with God it was never supposed to be one of our roles that we should never have started from the assumption that it was to be a discussion between two equal disputants. God is in heaven, we're upon the earth. God is holy, we're sinful. God knows all things, sees the end from the beginning. God needs no defense, for he is on the throne. He is the judge of all the earth. His kingdom is without end. Cease to question and to argue. Bow down before him, worship him. Get into the right attitude yourself, and then you'll begin to understand his actions. Or as it says pretty plainly in Job 13, would not his majesty terrify you? In other words, if God did a theophany for you in the Old Testament style, showed up in your room tonight, what do you think your emotional response would be? You'd be terrified. Every holy person that ever received a theophany had the same response. Terror. Let's not forget that. This is who we're talking about here. So right attitude in this study is absolutely vital. You will not understand everything. There'll be loose ends. There'll be things you can't seem to harmonize. But please come at it with this humility. Is God on trial here? God is not on trial. And he's not too worried about it, if you know what I'm saying. Like he says, like Nebuchadnezzar said about him in Daniel 4.35, all the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as he pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back his hand or say to him, what have you done? In other words, he's not accountable to any of us. He doesn't have to give us any answers at all. Again, Romans 11:34. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Is God asking you for advice? He is not. No one can be his counselor. Uh, I love this Westminster Confession of Faith. God hath most sovereign dominion over all creatures to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. Think about that. But upon, like God can do upon his creatures whatever he wants. Yes, because he's God and he owns his creatures. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service or obedience, he is pleased to require of them. So that's the attitude adjustment. That's the demeanor adjustment. Now here, you need to understand, I had to do this in the book of Job. This is very important because I had to talk, people going through suffering. And one of the major points of the book of Job is to teach us to not talk back to God. Suffering well means don't do that. Don't question God. What's the difference between questioning God and asking questions from God? Is there a difference? Or what is the difference then between questioning God and asking questions from God? Attitude. Attitude.
2: Desire versus demand. You're okay. desiring to understand, to partner, to come alongside, submitting to that versus demanding an answer. you mm-hmm. that equivalence a right to answer.
0: Yeah, I think absolutely. Maybe, maybe there's some of this, like we see between uh, Zechariah and the angel Gabriel and Mary and the angel Gabriel. They both seem to say about the same thing. How can this be? But there seemed to be a heart difference between the two, right? Zechariah was saying, how can this be? I don't think it can be. He didn't believe. Mary's marveling, like, how could it be in that I've never been with a man? And so clearly the reaction of the same angel to them shows a different heart state. One of them is asking a question, the other one is questioning. And so I think when it comes to this doctrine, people tend to do the questioning thing. And instead, I think what God wants is for us to humbly ask him questions. I don't understand. Help me to understand this. Help me to harmonize this. And that's different. And it's it's in that spirit that he goes on and gives answers, even though he doesn't need to. He goes on to give answers because he wants to educate his children. He wants us to think um, uh, and understand what he's doing. All right, so God's role. God is the potter, we are the clay. So I'm just I'm literally just following the verses here, just going, letting the verses lead where they 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 lead. All right. The rebuke reminds us of God's role. The image is one of God as shaper, molder, craftsman, potter. All right. Show what is formed say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Now the word what is formed, translated what is formed, the Greek word is plasma. It's a very interesting word. We're um, re- relating to something that can be molded, something plastic. I think it has the same etym- etymological root. Something that is shapeable something that's moldable, something that is changeable. So we are shapeable, right? We are moldable, we are changeable, all right? Things we read, conversations we have, experiences we undergo, people we observe or interact with, these things shape us, they mold us, they affect us, right? By contrast, God is not plastic. God is not shapeable or moldable. God just is. He is what he is. He is not affected. God isn't growing and developing with every century. He's not doing better and better with every generation of the church. Not at all. He never changes. He's not moldable plastic. He is the shaper. He is the potter. We are the clay. And God is shaping and fashioning his elect to make them like Jesus. We are being crafted to be like Christ as Romans 8:29 says for those God foreknew he predestined to be what conformed to the image of his son that's a shaping language we are being shaped to be like Jesus isn't that marvelous that's what's going on in sanctification he's shaping us he's crafting us he's molding us to be like Jesus that he might be the firstborn among many brothers the potter and the clay shall what his form say to him who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for noble purposes and some for common use? Now the key distinction Martin Lloyd-Jones makes, and I think it's very helpful, we should understand, this is speaking of God as shaper, as molder, not as creator. All right? This section, Romans 9, is not speaking of God as creator, but as God, uh, God as shaper and molder of what's already here. Why is that important? Because God didn't make anyone evil. God didn't make bad clay. Does that make sense? God didn't make putrid, stinking, nasty clay. Everything God made was good. And this is where I th- some, th- I think, theologians with superlapsarianism and infralapsarianism, if you don't know what that is, you're probably better off knowing what that not knowing what that is. But it has to do with the order of decrees and when God decided to make elect and reprobate and what the sequence is. And it's probing right to the edge of what we probably shouldn't be thinking about because it's not helpful to be speculative. But there is a coldness and a hardness to superlapsarianism, which seems to be that God needed two different types of people and then does everything after that. like like that was God's top priority. What Lloyd-Jones is saying here is that God created everything good. God didn't make anyone evil, but rather created Adam good in his image and his likeness with a completely free will to choose at the tree of knowledge of good and evil. But when Adam sinned, the whole human race sinned with him. All of us then became cursed and corrupted. This is the doctrine of original sin that we've been through in Romans 5, right? The whole human race, then, is a massive lump of really bad clay. We are all stinking, nasty clay. It's not like God's looking through this big pile of clay and finding some pockets of really good clay that he can use to make good vessels. That's exactly against the doctrine he's teaching here. The whole pile of clay was bad. All of it. All right, and, and key to this is like James 1.13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God does, cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. God isn't dragging or drawing people toward wickedness or sin. He never does that. It's not his nature. He hates evil. God is light in him. There's no darkness at all. He doesn't do that. All right, so instead, we got to think about God working with this pile of mess post-Adam, that's the conception here. It is as though God found this disgusting pile of rejected, stinking clay of no value, wrecked and defiled by evil, and chose to do something with some of it. He chose to take some of that lump that defiled and evil pile of useless clay and fashion it into the perfect image of his son. But he did more than that. He chose to give the rest uh, over to the desires of their evil hearts, to harden them and confirm them in their rebellion. He gave them over to what they wanted to be. He could have saved them all. He could have exerted his sovereign power in an awesome way and transformed them, but he chose not to. That's the image we have here. So God doesn't craft everyone for glory. Some vessels are crafted as vessels of honor. Some are hardened as vessels of dishonor. Some are vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Some are vessels of mercy whom he prepared for glory. Those are just the verses. That's just me restating the verses. All right, now along with this in verse 21 has to do with God's rights. Does God have the right to do this with this pile of clay? He does. Verse 21, does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay, some pottery for noble purpose and some for common use? So this has to do with rights of ownership. He is the sovereign king. Now key to this is the same lump of clay, as I just said. It's not like we were made out of an especially good section of the bad clay. That's directly contradictory to the doctrine here. That's not what he's saying. We were not made out of really particularly good clay out of the big nasty pile, not at all. God has the power out of the same lump of clay to make some pottery for one purpose and some for the other. So the, we originate the same. So that's the ultimate there, but by the grace of God go I. And we're gonna have that ultimate moment at the whole sheep and goats thing, right? Right? When the Son of Man comes in His glory, and He sits on His throne in heavenly glory, and all the nations are gathered before Him, and He separates the people, one from another, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats, and He says to the goats, "Depart from Me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels." Then these will go away to eternal punishment. What do you think the sheep are thinking at that moment? Based on this doctrine, what are they thinking?
1: Except for the grace of
0: life. Except for God's grace, I deserve that. Do you think that's much to God's purpose here? Yes. He wants you to think that. He wants you to think when you hear the words, come, you who are blessed by my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. I don't deserve this. I'm made out of the same lump of clay as these people. I did the same, many of the same sins that they did. And I think he wants us to think that way for all eternity. Does that make sense? There's just that humbling that comes from knowing we're no different than them. And that for all eternity. That's why I think we will know who the damned are, how they lived, and that they're damned, so that we can learn this lesson forever. Because the damned are being set up here, the reprobate are being set up as educational tools for the righteous. That's what this whole logic is. But when do we learn the lesson? Not primarily here on earth frankly the wicked look like they get away with it don't they i mean many of them as job said die in their beds surrounded by kids that loved them so we don't get the display of wrath then we get it later and then therefore we have to be able to see it in order to get the education get the benefit from it so i'm i'm jumping ahead but that's where he's that's where he's going the point here is god has the right to do this now if you say i'm being a little harsh on the pile of clay am i Is the clay really, really good clay? No, it was declared worthless. There is no one righteous, not even one, no one who seeks God, no one who does good. They have together become worthless. What does worthless mean? Let's take it to the clay. What would you call worthless clay? Yeah, it's, it's not what you would choose to make a fine, elegant vessel out of. Instead, we are... When we are conformed to Christ, and we will be perfectly conformed, we will marvel that God could do that with people like us. That he could take such as we were and make glorious Christ-like people. That's incredible. But he does that for his own, his own glory. Same lump of clay. Now, pottery for noble purposes is vessels of honor. God has the right to take out a stinking wicked clay and transform it into a vessel of honor. That's what he calls it, a vessel of honor vessel vessel of glory so what is it it's a it's like holding honor or like god's going to pour honor into it or i think ultimately glory and the glory is the glory of god poured into us we are going to be vessels holding the glory of god uh i didn't choose this but matthew 13 43 one of my favorite verses then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father So you're going to be radiantly beautiful. I mean, you're going to shine like the angel that announced Jesus' birth, right? You're going to glow like Moses' face shone. Your whole body's going to shine. Does that have any connection to the glory of God? Any chance that that's related in any way to the glory of God? Or is that just your own independent glory? Any thoughts on this? (laughs) (laughs) That is God's glory shining in you. So you are a vessel of glory. That's incredible, isn't it? Second uh, Cor- uh, Corinthians 3.18, it says, and we all who with, with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord, that's Jesus, are being transformed into the same image from glory into glory. And all this comes from the Lord who is a spirit. We are vessels of honor, vessels of glory. And the glory is Christ's, the glory is God's. And we're shining with that. Conversely, uh, God has the right to take out of that stinking, nasty pile of clay and make pottery uh, for dishonor, and that's the language He uses here—a vessel of dishonor. It doesn't have that glory. Does that make sense? Yeah. Good
2: question. Is it fair to say that when God speaks of hardening hearts, that's the same thing as God giving somebody over to their idolatry? Definitely. Definitely. In, in, in um, what's this? Jeremiah eighteen? Let me just read this. It "House of Israel, can I not do with you as the potter does? Because there's light clay in the hand of the potter, so are you in my hand, O house of Israel. Right. right? If any time I ask that the nation of kingdom is to be rooted or to out and destroyed, and if that nation I warn repents of the evil, then I will relent." and not inflict on it the disaster I am, right? Yeah. And if at another time I announce that a nation is to be built up and and it does evil in my sight, and does not obey me, then I will reconsider the good that I intended the-
0: Yeah, Ezekiel says the same thing.
2: Okay, yeah. so my point is where there seems to be um, an interaction, a, a synergistic interaction yeah. here between God's response and, and the...
0: Yeah, there is, an, and I had, a, I had you know, because of my pattern in scripture memorization, I went over this for a hundred days, again and again and again and again, and, and it was hard for me to understand it because it does seem arbitrary because God waits. If God doesn't just instantly deal with somebody, then there's no chance for later changing either from good to bad or bad to good. In the Ezekiel passage, you can go from good to bad, and you can go from bad to good. And he says, if you go from good to bad, I'm not going to look at any of the good things you did, but I'm going to bring judgment on you. Conversely, if you go from, from, from bad to good, I won't even think about any of all the sins you committed. I will just look on you with grace and mercy. I'm like, well, the whole thing implies a waiting period, right? Instead of instantly dealing with the first time you did bad or did good, right? There's, now well, let's let the story play out. And that's where it gets interesting because God, you know, with some, he lets it play out for years, others, shorter time, like with Herod, he strikes him dead. Uh, with Nebuchadnezzar, he gives him seven years uh, thinking like an animal. It's just difficult to follow what God's doing. This
2: is this happened before born, in the womb, why there of change in
0: Right. For me as a Christian though, when I hear Jeremiah and also Ezekiel, one thing I do know, there are no vessels of of mercy in heaven that didn't repent. Right? <laughs> they all repented and trusted in Christ. So the repentance is essential to that process. We're going to we're going to repent. Let me finish uh just the verses. And a little, uh, I know it's one minute over, but I want to just get to the punchline that Paul gets to in verse 22 and 23. What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy whom he prepared in advance for glory? if you look at the words, look at the words, show God choosing to show his wrath and then make his power known. This is display language. See that Both with great patience, object to wrath, prepare for destruction. What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known? All right. This is display education language. He wants to teach a group of people something. And what does he want to teach them? He wants to show his attributes through both both of these categories, his wrath, his power, his patience, his mercy. Those are four attributes put on display in this whole process. God does all of this, therefore, to put himself on display. And the appreciative audience are the elect. The reprobate may be aware, but they're not appreciative. Do you know what I'm saying? They're not down in hell saying, I can see what you did, God. That was really awesome. I don't think so. I think it'll be seething with rage and resentment for all eternity. But for us, we're the appreciative audience that say, look at what God did here. Look at how he did this. We are the appreciative audience. It was all for us. That's what he's getting at. All right, we're out of time. It's deep, isn't it? It's a lot, a lot to think about. All right, Andy, would you close us in prayer?
1: Father, you are, it is deep. Uh, and you are good, holy, righteous. It uh, Lord, as as Paul said, it's just how unsearchable are you? And Father, we praise you for that. We worship you and we thank you for uh, the mercy that you have shown us. So draw us closer to you. I pray that we love you more than we did when we came in here. Just thank you for your word and who you
2: are. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Amen. Thanks.